Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Prize Picks is daily fantasy sports made easy. How does it work? You pick two to six players, and if they will go score more or less than their prize picks projection, you can win up to 25 times your money on any entry. Didn't get your picks in before the game started? No problem. You can get in the game for the second half. Sign up today using promo code HOLIDAY and get your first deposit instantly matched up to $100. Go to prizepicks.com or download the mobile app and enter code HOLIDAY to get your deposit match. Some restrictions do apply. See the website for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Helen Lewis, and I want to tell you about a podcast I've made for BBC Radio 4 and BBC Sounds. It's called The New Gurus, and it's about how everywhere you look on the internet, people are giving advice. Advice they claim will transform your life. Advice that gets some thousands, even millions of devoted followers. These online prophets are telling us how to eat, how to think, how to get rich, how to find love, how to manage our time. So how exactly are these gurus changing our lives and the world around us? And who holds them to account? Find out by subscribing to The New Gurus wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Hello, I'm Keith Arthur and welcome aboard the Strange Boat Podcast. First mate on the bridge today is journalist, broadcaster and most importantly angler, Nigel Botherway. Nigel is the main presenter on TalkSport 2's Fish and Blues programme every Sunday morning from 6 until 8am. We're going to that a little later, but first, let's get to know a bit more about the man. It's good to have you on board, Nigel. First of all, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Keith. Yeah, good to be here. Thank you very much. We've bounced around on air a few times together, haven't we, um, one way or another? We certainly have, yeah. Many... <laughs> goes back a long long way and of course many happy many happy times together at tight lines back in those days yeah we'll find out a bit more of that actually i've got a little list of things to talk about and that's one of them but first of all let's back to the very beginning whereabouts you come from where are you a native of well i grew up in hampton hill um as you know for a long time i lived just across the other side of the river to you in twickenham so sort of hampton hill twickenham is my stomping ground that's where i grew up and of course, that put me, you know, right. It's funny, I only worked out the other day. I've always lived within a couple of miles of the River Thames. And uh, growing up in Hampton Hill, I used to fish the Thames and, of course, served my apprenticeship like lots of other anglers in Bushy Park. Caught my very first fish from the Diana Pond, a little roach, when I was five years old. And interesting to see how the likes of Terry Hearn, Mickey Gray, and a lot of other famous anglers cut their teeth on the Diana Pond. It is as well, because it was one of those rare places where you could go and catch a carp because they were almost uncatchable when in, in your youth, never mind my youth. 
That's right. I mean, as, as a boy, all we caught were roach and perch. I don't think there were any carp in there in the very early days. If you were really lucky, you'd catch a tench or a small pike. And it wasn't till I was probably early teens, I think, there was first carp in there. And that coincided. At first, they were almost impossible to catch. And we used to make what we called specials with um, Nesquik um, milkshake, you know, strawberry or chocolate or banana flavour. And uh, I remember for our bite indicators, you'd put a uh, the old, I don't think they did plastic ones in those days, those aluminium disgorges in, in the ground with like a little ring of plastic around them um, through your line and you'd watch those or else you'd fish with your Mitchell 300s for churners. But then, of course, it just about coincided when I was probably about 14 or 15 with sweet corn. And boy, was that... And we used swing tips as well. So you'd wait for your sweet... I just remember now, when we progressed to swing tips, you'd wait for your swing tip to go straight out and then the Mitchell 300, pick the rod up, fish on. Oh, great times with my old mate Richard Moss. We'd go straight from school. We'd be there, school holidays. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. So you evolved very soon and very early into wanting to catch bigger fish. Yeah, I always did. I always wanted to sort of catch something that you had to put a landing net under. And I always wanted to catch, you know, I always said I'd rather catch, you know, one big one than lots of little ones. Like, like really, be alongside the diner, we used to fish the um, the heron pond and the leg of mutton ponds, you know. And again, mostly for tench, just absolutely love tench fishing. And, um, you yeah, know, in the daytime with a float and then at night, although you weren't supposed to fish, though you're still not now, but when we were kids, we'd fish over there all night or we'd sleep in the ferns. And, you know, you'd have your bicycle lamp on your swing tip and, uh, oh, yeah, love tension. In those <laughs> days, full of lily pads, the lakes were beautiful. They really were. And I remember once thinking I'd caught a huge tension. You shouldn't really say this now, but you you, you, you back me up on this. In those days, um, you know, it was advertised, you know, the likes of your heroes in the papers. People used to fish a double, you know, like a pastor, paternoster with two hooks that you could try maggots on one and bread on the other. And I remember once thinking I caught the biggest tench in the world and I had two tench on at once. I think I stopped using two hooks after <laughs> that, but I was only about 10, didn't know any better. Well, I'm not even sure if, I don't think it's allowed anymore in matches, but it used to be common practice in the northwest. Um, on match fishing, match fishing, you're allowed two hooks. I know the weaver was some place they used to use it a lot, and some of the big dams up there, um, they use a double hook not to catch two fish at once, but you know, worm on one, maggot on the other, or whatever, and, and just see what you caught most on, and then you'd, you'd put two baits on that. But I suppose it's double the chance. And, and fly fishing, I think you can use up to four in, in competition, but again, it's a team of flies. You don't put four on all the same. They're all different with a different function on the leader. Three of them might be sacrificial just to make one work. It's uh, yeah, but, but that's that. You, you know that better than me. But that's um, I've also I've also it, it's always worth back, bearing in mind. Yeah, when I've just thought back again, when I first fished for the big roach at Lynch Hill um, on Willow Lake there. All the top angler, I'm talking 25 years ago, but all the top specimen hunters from all around the country used to fish there trying to catch those big roach. And when I first started mm. there, everybody used two hooks. Incredible, isn't it, when you look back? Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I for, it's just how style changed. And of course, yeah, if, if, if you can use two rods, three rods, four rods now in some places, then the problem with two hooks is much smaller. In fact, the last thing you want to do is to catch two fish at once because it's a complete nightmare. Uh, I've only ever done it with trout. I've never done it with anything else. But I've had two. You're fighting one, especially if you get a big brown. You're fighting a big brown trout next to the boat and a silly rainbow comes up and takes a top drop and snaps you off. That's really what you don't want. But anyway, that's that's a different story. So you, you got into big fish fishing quite quickly. Did, did you ever really consider yourself to be a carp specialist? No, never did, never have. You know, I just I just loved fishing, really. And, and I suppose in those days, you grew up fishing around the season. So, you know, you fish for carp and tench in the summer, and then you fished for, you know, pike, chub, perch, yeah, etc. and roach in the winter. I think, you know, yeah, again, growing up with the likes of Dick Walker and, you know, all those people, you like to think you're an all-rounder. I suppose, I suppose as young anglers, you know, schoolboys, me and Mossy, we used to think ourselves as specimen hunters. That's probably what we'd have called ourselves. I don't think I've ever thought of myself as a carp angler. I love carp fishing, but um, I, I still do, as you know. 
a bit of absolutely everything all year round and try and pack it all in, probably to the detriment of success. I sometimes think how much easier it would be if you just stuck to one thing. I think of people like Trevor West who just barbel fishes nearly all year round and in the close season fishes for trout. You know, think how much little, how little gear he needs. Whereas, um, you know, when you've got roach, roach gear, float gear, fly gear, your pike gear, your barbel gear, it, uh, it all adds up, as you know. There's a difference between needs and owns, isn't there? We don't need very much gear, but we tend to own a whole lot of it. I do. I think fishing rods for us are perhaps like shoes or handbags for women. You just, you're right. You don't need it, but you want it, don't you? And uh, I saw a good quote the other day. that said, I need to find a hobby that doesn't involve a credit card. <laughs> but it does. It's something little boy in the collecting. It, it, it makes you happy, doesn't it? You know, I've got more rods than I'll ever need, and I'm always giving them away to people. But when you buy a new rod, it does give you, it does make you happy. So, uh, that's part of the fishing good for our mental health. I actually bought a new rod not that long ago. I bought a rod and a reel um, because I didn't have anything that fitted the bill. I wanted sort of a heavier duty match rod, not to catch carp, but for river fishing. Like, so I, I bought a 14 foot um, rod and a reel to go with it because I've got hundreds of reels. But I want, well, no, I haven't got hundreds, I've got dozens of reels. But I, I wanted a modern one with a good drag for sort of normal float fishing. And I took it up to um, a piece on the Upper Lee where I, I, I'm invited to give a demonstration of stick float fishing every year. And um, I had barbel on it to nine pounds, weighed nine pounds. And um, I always give it over to some of the people that are there. There's usually 20-odd people turn up to have a look. And I always give it over to them. And they had some cracking barbel on it too. Some of them their first ever barbel, some their biggest ever barbel. But uh, when I look back, someone took a photo of me playing this nine-pounder and the flipping thing was bent to the corks. Fantastic. <laughs> but, uh, uh, that, yeah, that's did a, a rod that I need yeah. to add to my armour. You know, I do a bit of float fishing for barbel. I love catching them on the float, but I haven't got a rod that's absolutely yeah. suited to it. So it could be dangerous. Next time I see you, I might be buying another rod. This, uh, Thank you very much. Have a lend, yeah. I'm on the um, I'm on the same thing at the end of middle of November and I'll be using it at the end of this month when I've been uh, invited for a day at Broadlands. Oh, yeah, um, of course, yeah. So I'll be is taking it down. Trust day? It is, yeah. I used it at Throop um, at the end of June, um, filming with Ray Boris for Chubb, and I only had three, but I had to get them from the other side of a weed bed on a waggler. In fact, I had to pull them through the weed bed. And the biggest one was, oh, you know me, Nigel, I've, I haven't got scales with me or I can't find them. You'll remember the barbell on the... Um, on the Bristol Avon where I couldn't I find do, the scales. I do, yeah, and that's um, definitely but, a balmy. Yeah, but I, th I think the um, I think the biggest one was probably if it wasn't six pound, it was no more than a fag paper away. It was a very very big fish, and the other two, I, I reckon, and I, you know I've caught a few chub, and I've caught I've, I've actually caught a few sixes, which is a surprise. Um, uh, the, the other two were a big three and an even bigger four, and uh, yeah, lovely days fishing. But that's that's something else, and and. I'm someone that doesn't weigh my fish, but I remember them affectionately. And, and I think I remember telling you, Martin Bowler told me that Kenneth, that, that um, barbel on the on the Bristol Avon, he'd caught the year before at £12.7. So it was an appreciable fish. Oh, it certainly was. It was um, like a, I was going to say, it was such a cold day. We didn't think we were going to catch anything that day. We didn't think there was any chance of barbel no. by. I just did one of my old river tricks that day as well. I, I fished a stick float and, and fed and fed and fed, not expecting to get a bite on it. But just to get feed regularly going into the swim. And it was tap water clear, you'll remember. And I, and I saw a barbel swim past under my feet. It didn't look that big. I thought it was one there now. So I just, you know, lobbed the bomb out with a couple of, with one or two pellets. I can't remember, it was just one eight mil pellet, I think, um, banded on the hook. And um, had a couple of little twitches. And then I got the, the normal four foot twitch. And um, yeah, it was game on. So that was a good day. And, but you, you're not one of those anglers, although I know the kind of fish you catch. I don't often see pictures of you in the paper holding one. You're, you're not someone that makes a big noise about catching fish, I don't think, anyway. No, it's funny because although I work for Talk Sport and I was at one stage the angling correspondent on the Sunday Times, I've always seen fishing as my hobby. And, you know, I just love, you know, I just, I'm happy going fishing. I don't need to sort of catch a specimen to, you know, post it online or send it off to the papers. I just... I just love going fishing. I love getting bites. Um, 
when you do get a picture, I caught a 37 pound common the other day, it was immaculate, didn't get a picture of it and didn't really bother me because if I had got a picture of it, you know, I showed it to about two mates and that would be it. You know, I've got enough pictures of fish on my phone to bore people with already. But um, no, it's just, I like catching them. I love out, just being out there. It's funny, the longer I've been fishing, I've fished for over 60 years now, the longer I've been fishing, it worries me, the more I love it, but the less I have to catch fish. Even like, you know, my mate Sean Hodges, quite often he'll be fishing, we'll go fishing. Yeah. He'll be there first, he always is. And uh, I'll rock up and I'll sit next to him chatting away. And maybe an hour later he'll say, you're going to have a fish. And sometimes I will and sometimes I'll say, oh, maybe. You know, it just I just love being there and going. It's um, uh, I like, go, you know, I do like catching big ones, but it's not the be all and end all. I was at um, North Alley yesterday at Goats. I'm fishing on, on our penultimate family fishing day of the year. And we were almost going to cancel it because the weather forecast was so, so dire. And it turned into an absolutely beautiful day yesterday. And, and, and like you say, I get an awful lot of pleasure about watching other people catch fish, especially if it's their first fish or they're just trying something different and never seen a fish before. And, um, yeah, that, that's, that's what, what we were doing there yesterday. But I still can't help myself when they've had a little bit and they start to get despondent and i say look if you do what i tell you you'll definitely catch one look let me show you and if i haven't got one within about 15 seconds i'll get really angry (laughs) (laughs) i was going to say you're right because you and i have caught so many big fish all around the world say you know just say your biggest you know your biggest fish is x you know you you might never beat that whereas you can catch one a tenth of the size for somebody else and help them to land it. And they're so happy. You get more pleasure from them catching it than, you know, if you caught it yourself. Absolutely. You see these some of the youngsters we get over there where fishing isn't in within their any of their structure being grown up. It's not part of a custom for their country or their place of origin. They've never ever thought about it before. None of their parents have ever done it. Maybe subsistence fishing with a net or a spear or something like that. But they've never taken part in our kind of catch and release fishing. And to see them when they swing out their first four-inch perch, I dare say they're as excited as I was when I swung out my four, first four-inch perch 70 years ago. And it is something that uh, that sticks with you. There's no question about it. That's one picture I wish I had. I've got a picture, you know my mate Steve Glassop, I've got a picture of us sat in the Calvary River in India cradling a 70-pound mass ear together. And I wish I had the picture of us as two five-year-olds in Bushy Park with the first roach we ever caught. It'd be I'd, that is something yeah. I'd like in a frame. The two the two pictures like that. But um, you're right. And what's interesting, you know, I remember when we had that school from Hounslow that um, we filmed over a six-week period at North Haller, and it was fantastic seeing the pleasure on those kids. It's interesting. I always say. You know, fishing it just some people it lights a fire in them, whether they're kids or adults. And some of those kids you know enjoy it or don't enjoy it but others you can just see that spark has been ignited and you know they're an angler don't you well the the great thing about that and, and i know this is going off tangent a little bit but i, I dare say it's, it's it's it could be interesting for somebody else to hear what we had what we did over there six weeks we had a group of school children from lampton school uh, again angling probably wasn't within the, the culture of most of them and um first of all we showed them how to fish and then we showed them how to catch a fish and then we showed them how to handle a fish and and the first five weeks were spent doing that but then you'll remember the sixth week they had to show their schoolmates two years below them and they were only they were probably third year of the of, of a secondary school i would think i don't know what yeah, year numbers yeah, are these days like that, probably yeah. 13 13 14 maybe and they had to show the first year children who just started school because it was september wasn't it and they had to show the first year's news um, and, and do you remember the naughty kid he was in fact they wouldn't let him come on the second week because he was so naughty on the first week and he was on the corner on, on the side rather of the the, the lake behind where we do most of the coaching and I was listening to him and, and he, one of the the, the the youngster he was showing how to fish caught a tench 
And he said, ah, that's a lovely fish. That's called a tench. They call them the doctor fish. And if you look, they've got red eyes. And he went through and had remembered every single thing. We told him about tench, how to catch them, where they lived, why he'd caught it, the whole thing. And, And stuff like that, unless you actually do it, and experience it, there is no way you can transmit that feeling to someone that's never done it. And it just shows the way of learning. You know, when I think all kids have got an aptitude for something and, you know, at school we try too much to, you know, you take a, I always say, if anyone's got a family, if they've got more than one child, the chances are their two or three children are all completely different. You know, you put 25, 30 kids in a, in a classroom and you expect to teach them all the same thing the same way. It just doesn't work. And yeah, that's the thing with no. kids is find out what they're interested in and nurture it and they'll learn in a completely different way. And yeah, that kid was amazing. And somebody else could have just written him off as a naughty kid. But you and I like those ones, don't we? Oh, yeah, they're, they're the ones we get on with best. Probably because I was once that kid. <laughs> well, we, you know, we get several, you know, we deal with pupil referral units there and, 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 and these are children that, that and young people that are let down basically by the education system. The education doesn't suit them rather than the other way around. And um, they finish up in, in these called these things called pupil referral units and, and we have a couple of groups over there every every week. And what they learn, anyway. That's this. But let's, let's get back to a bit of fishing. Um, <laughs> you, you mentioned you mentioned about that lovely thirty-seven pound common the other day. What? And I know this isn't going to. I'm sure it's not going to be the biggest. But what do you consider your best fish that you've caught in Britain? And I'm going to say Britain because I know you fished every, all of the all of the home nations. So we we won't ignore Wales. Where I know you said you you were there a couple of weeks ago catching some lovely dace. Well, funny enough, I, I think if you had to pin me down to one fish, and it's lucky you said Britain, not England, because it would have been Wales. And I surprise a lot of people when I say it, but be my first, I've only caught two, but it was my first 30-pound pike, and it was 33-pound 12, caught it on a surface lure in the summer, saw it hit the lure, and my legs went to jelly. But I think the reason that is the, is the, is the one is because, like, when I was a kid and I'm going slightly overseas now, but, you know, when I was a kid, I'd never heard of a mass ear or a sturgeon or, a, you know, alligator gar or whatever, you, you know, all these lao lao, all these big fish from around the world. Yet when you're a small boy, when I used to fish Bushy Park and particularly the Longwater Home Park at Hampton Court that come, runs off the palace, there was a pike in there. I don't know whether it ever existed, but all the little boys were scared of it. It was called Grandad, and there were stories of the older boys shooting at it with air rifles and eating the ducks and Jack Russells. And yeah, when you're a young boy, it's a pike you really want to catch. And yeah, the biggest pike I'd caught by the eight, I think my first pike, I was probably about 12, and it was about two or three pounds on a spinner. But yeah, it was a big pike that I always wanted to catch. And you know, I wasn't, I was probably in my mid-twenties, maybe even late-twenties before I had my first 20-pounder because as a kid, it takes a while to dawn on you. The reason you haven't caught anything bigger than 15-pound is because the places you're fishing, there isn't anything bigger than 15. And as you probably remember, I started going up fishing the broads and that was when I got friends with people like Dave Plummer and the sadly departed Richard Furlong. But yeah, so I suppose that 30-pounder, that was a real milestone. That was the one fish that I'd really always wanted to catch. And, yeah, that was a, that was a special moment. <clears throat> to do it on a surface lure, were you hoping to catch fish that big on a surface lure? Because quite often in the summer, that's a, a, a tactic used for catching sort of the smaller, more active little jackal, little male pike normally, um, especially on a surface lure. Were you shocked when you saw this great big crocodile come up? Uh, not really, because it was just at the start of the, um, sort of probably the late 90s, start of the jerkbait revolution. And um, I just had, uh, I, I remember being cross because a few casts earlier, I'd had a 26 and a half. And, you know, for somebody like me who didn't go pike fishing that much, for most winters, a 26 and a half would be your biggest pike, you know, of that year. Um and so I remember thinking, God, why couldn't I have saved that one for another day? You know, once I'd had the 30, I did, you know, the 26, I was thinking, oh, I wish I'd have caught that another day. And um, 
<laughs> yeah, and that was the days of your slide photos as well. And it's funny because I've still got the slide. I'd have a real job to find it, but I've got the slide to the the, the 33. I've got no idea what happened to the slide of the 26, but uh, uh, one day I need to sort all my slides out. But I, whether I'll ever get round to it, I'm not sure. You need one of those big light boxes and spread them all out in front of you and go in, out, in, out, in, out, 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 out yeah, in, in. Yeah, and yeah, so you get, yeah. Just have a, a proper edit. Yeah. It's not easy, I know. I, I bought a scanner and I've scanned a few, but it's hard work. I'm, I don't yeah. think I can ever see me doing the yeah. lot. No, no. Maybe get someone else. Find a, fr- find a friendly person who works on a paper. They've got departments that do it. That is very <laughs> true. That is true. What about, um, you, you, you slipped a, a little word in there when you were talking about the exotic fish you've caught amongst the alligator gar, sturgeon, etc. You mentioned lao lao. And um, we've got a picture on the wall at the, at the in the classroom at North Aller, and the number of people that come in and say, "What's that fish?" And it, it, it's your lao lao. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, also known as a pariba. Yeah, um, as you know, Joe Taylor and I always used to go to India. Well, with Dave Plummer, Steve Harper, and uh, we. We probably went to India for 10 years and then things deteriorated over there and um, it sort of fizzled out, sadly. Pollution, dynamite, politics, one thing and another. And then Joe, we had some great adventures all over the place. We were going to Kazakhstan trying to catch a world record catfish and Joe quite got into the catfish. He also used to go to the Ebro, which I never quite fancied. And then Joe started going to South America and he started telling about this jungle that was better than India. And so next year I went with him and it was just, it was just so, so beautiful. We fished um, the top of South America. We fished Suriname and Guyana. And the reason I say both is because the river divided the the two countries. And I can joke that I'm one of the few people to hook a fish in one country and land it in another because when I caught that big one, I was tied up to the bank in Guyana and at first we were fishing it looked like it was a place i know there'll only be a handful but some listeners might have been there but wanatoba falls and just at the bottom of the falls there's a little bit it was a bit like a sort of a a gigantic thames weir pool and i hooked this fish in quite deep water and at first it was just plodding round almost under the rod tip and i was thinking i'm going to land this here this is handy and then all of a sudden the fish sort of exited stage left and it's just probably the most incredible fight I've ever had for a fish. It zoomed off out into the open water and got out in the main current. Um, We quickly, and I wish I'd have known this knot when I was in Kazakhstan, because I might have been the the world record holder for catfish, because I hooked a fish there we called Nessie, it was so big, and it spalled me before we could undo the rope, which was tied to some rushes. But when I went to Argentina fishing for the the, uh, Golden Dorado, and a guy there taught me the same knot that cowboys use. You know, when cowboys come running out of the saloon and jump on their horses, they just pull the equivalent of the tag end and the, the reins come undone from the, you know, the railing outside the saloon. And uh, some of the Argentina taught us that knot. And we did that in, um, in, in well, I was going to say Suriname, on the Guyana border. So Winnell, who was driving the boat, just pulled that. We set off after this fish and it went down this set of rapids, which... Hard to recall exactly now, and it will sound like exaggerating, but it was probably about 800 yards of rapids. And this fish just towed us down these rapids and out into the main river. And there it was a bit deep, and it was daylight when I hooked it. By the time we got it almost to the boat, it was starting to get gloomy. The boat was like a canoe. It was probably 16 feet long. And to, to, to obviously you're not going to get a fish like that in a landing net. And, we hadn't caught one at this stage and we'd been there nearly two weeks and we'd been told you have to lasso them around the tail. So we, for two weeks, we'd had the lasso ready all with the knot tied um, in the boat. Mark Taylor was in the boat with me. It was me, Mark, and the boatman, Winnell. And uh, Mark had the lasso and I, he said, I can see its head. And I looked at the other end of the boat and he, you know, he was up the opposite end to me. And I said, and the tail's up this end, Mark, and there's a long way between them. I just couldn't believe how big it was. And Mark did a good job of lassoing it. And uh, we went over to the bank on the Suriname side and we got out and we weighed it. And oh, it was it was a shame because it's a great photo, but it was dark by the time we took the photos. And um, and it was, 
yeah, the pictures didn't fully do it justice, but as you know, it's still a great picture. Three of us to hold it, 198 pounds, and uh, oh yeah, very special. And uh, the other funny thing, we had, we had, I don't know, maybe six bottles of beer between four of us, and we shared them. And do you know what? We were as high as kites, just on the elate, you know, on the, on just so elated the emotion of it all you know we could have drunk another 10 bottles of beer it wouldn't have made any difference it was it was a lovely feeling and uh yeah great moment really uh, i think it was better the fact that we'd had such a hard trip and between us it was the only one we one of the guys kirk who was there caught a 55 pounder but they were the only two we caught fishing really hard for two weeks and traveling a lot of water up river so so yeah i was chuffed to bits with that one would you put that down as your best overseas capture? No, I, because that was a bit what I'd call a holiday fish. You know, you didn't have to work hard. Although we worked hard physically, um, you know, getting bitten by just about everything. I wanted to cry one night. I was in a Gore-Tex bivy bag, and I don't know what horde of insects got in there, but I was, like, bitten from head to toe, and I was bleeding, and it was absolutely horrendous. So it's hard work in that, but it wasn't like, you had to work it out, you know, where you were lobbing a big dead bait in, you know, in likely looking spots. I'd say probably if I had to push, although I've caught much bigger fish, um, a lot of them I'd say like holiday fish, but I'd say my biggest mass here, which was 88 pound, you know, that came after a lot of years of learning how to fish from them, reading the river and you'd spend all year planning. The minute you got home and started emptying your case, you started thinking what you're gonna put in next year and you'd think of tackle refinements you, and little tricks and you were gonna do next year. And yeah, I think that well, that was a fish, you know, and I was lucky some people caught a big mass here the first time they ever went. I mean, I was lucky the first time I went, I had a couple of 40s and a couple of 30s, but I sort of worked my way up to that 88 and I really felt I'd sort of served my apprenticeship and you know, I'd had, 40s 50s 60s 70s and then to get an 88 that was uh yeah that that that's probably my best ever overseas capture i would say they they just look incredible fish it's hard to tell looking at them which they're closest to isn't it whether they're closer to carp or barbel um but they're definitely somewhere between the two they're a bit more carpy than a comiso barbel and a bit more barbely than a wild carp yeah, they probably look a bit more like a carp, but fight more like a barbel. You know, when you when they're in the current and just holding station, you know, you could think you were snagged. You just can't move them. They're just, you can't believe how hard they fight. But and 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 of course, the environment you're fishing for them in is just so beautiful. I have to admit, though, a few years ago, I was really sad when it sort of dawned on me that yeah, the fishing's gone. They're virtually extinct in the Calvary, especially the original golden massier. And it was quite sad a few years back, maybe 10 years ago. Funny enough, I was sitting in the talks, the old talk sports studios in Hatfield talking or um, talking to somebody about Massey and just the penny dropped. You're never going to fish for them again, Nigel, not in the south of India anyway. And at first I was really sad. But I have to admit now, when I look back, swimming across the river in really fast currents where you're likely to drown if you got it wrong, running, just sprinting over rocks when you had a fish on and you had to chase it downstream. I honestly don't think I could, well, I don't think, I know I wouldn't be up to that anymore. But uh, yeah, happy days, some of the best fishing I've ever experienced. Just got it at the right time. Yeah, we did, we did. I used to feel guilty thinking of the old days of the Raj if they'd have had the tackle that we had, you know, like I, I could have two claims to fame on, on Massia fishing. One was I was the first person to use owner hooks. And secondly, by default, because everyone else's rods were breaking, Dave Plummer said to me, try this. And I was the first person to use a dial or uptide rod. And um, it proved they were the, <laughs> they were the, they were the ultimate tool for catching Massia. They were the kiddies for tarpon as well. We quite yeah, often, yeah. Roy and I used, um, Roy Marlow and I used, we, we went from using the, what everybody else was using, which was a six foot, um, one piece um, Shimano boat rod, uh, which was, I think, 20 pound class, to using the, 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 the highest grade of uptider. And they made such a difference to the number of tarpon we caught. I don't think it made quite as much difference as it made when I started using fluorocarbon line. Not hook lengths. The hook lengths obviously made a difference. But fluorocarbon line, couldn't believe the difference that made to the number of tarpon we caught. But, but hooking them was so much easier on those, those longer rods. I don't know whether 
fighting that was easier. I'm not sure. I'm, it, it's, jury's out on that. But, uh, yeah, we certainly caught a few on them. That, that is absolutely without question. Now, I'll tell you what I've been trying to do for the last, ever since we'd arranged this chat. Price Picks is daily fantasy sports made easy. How does it work? You pick two to six players, and if they will go score more or less than their Price Picks projection, you can win up to 25 times your money on any entry. Didn't get your picks in before the game started? No problem. You can get in the game for the second half. Sign up today using promo code HOLIDAY and get your first deposit instantly matched up to $100. Go to prizepicks.com or download the mobile app and enter code HOLIDAY to get your deposit match. Some restrictions do apply. See the website for details. I was trying to think where and how we first met. Do you remember? Do you know what? I've often thought that, and it's a bit of a blur because it seems like we've known each other forever, doesn't it? But um, I can't, yeah. I, I don't think I could quite put my finger on it. I think it was somehow or other, maybe an angling show or a Daiwa trade show, because I think it was in the days when you were Daiwa and I was quite good friends with John Middleton because we, were in, we used to fish in the same syndicate, Hemingford, Gray and Cambridgeshire for a while. And I think John Middleton might have introduced us. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you're probably right. It was, it was before I, I think it was before I worked for Dyer. I worked for Dyer from, officially worked for them from 90 to 95, but I was involved with them from about 84, 85. And, and you know, I'd go to the trade shows and, and Kevin Nash would be there. And when he was part of Dyer and, and, and Lee Kerry's dad, Paul, he'd be there. And, and all manner of, of, of people would be in some way or another associated with Dyer. And I think it must have been then. And then, um, you were, uh, were you editor or, or publisher of Airporter magazine? Yeah, Skyport, yeah, which was the staff. It was a, it was a newspaper, yeah, independent newspaper for all the staff, originally at Heathrow, and then we launched at Gatwick and at, and at Stansted. So, yeah, I started off as the editor and then became the group editor and then the publisher. Yeah, happy many happy days. And, of course, that helped because I had good airline contacts and I used to get quite a few either free, <laughs> either free flights or some upgrades for a long time. I only used to turn left when I got on the plane, which was very nice. I, I miss those days now, especially when you get treated so badly on f- flying now. It's... Um, but isn't it strange? Our lives have been, you know, we've done so much together working and fishing as pals, yet usually you can remember anyone where you first met them. It's really strange, that, especially you, because yeah. I always say I wish I had your memory. Your memory is amazing and my memory is terrible. But you think we'd remember that. It's, it's, yeah, it's weird, isn't it? I think it must have been probably a gradual meeting you know we, we were there and we and we sort of nod at each other the first time and then shake hands a second time and then start talking about fishing the third time and then i'd be doing a radio show and you'd be sitting in for me yeah that's right <laughs> well and, and and even before the radio show started of course um going back you know before sky the old wire tv we used to appear on that together didn't we and go fishing yeah. with david bird i remember we went to blenheim had some good days there that's right that was and that was 94 that that's i started there doing that show every other week in may 94 birdie did it the week i didn't yeah we we had a, we had a few ventures on that didn't we and then, of course, that was taken over by Sky for tight lines. Um, Sky took over the whole channel, YTV, and, and when they launched Sky Sports Two in '95, yeah, that was um, that was a while ago. And we had some great shoots together, didn't we, for tight lines? We did some fantastic oh, things on there. We did. I still fishing, think of you know. the last one. How sad it was! It was when we were out with Andrew Allsop, and we caught blues. I caught that 256-pound Paul Beagle. And I remember stepping Paul off Beagle, the boat. Yeah. We knew then that, you know, tight lines had come to an end. And I remember stepping off the boat, yeah. you know, just thinking the great times I'd had on individual shoots, brilliant shoots with you. And, you know, as we got off with the crew, we all knew that was the last one. And it was, yeah, it was, we'd have probably down the pub for a wake if it wasn't for the fact we had to drive four hours home. But, uh, yeah, it was quite an emotional moment. That <laughs> I, I often look back at that. It was, it was a good four hours home as well from um, from that part of the world, from um, the, the end of Wales, Pembroke Dock. That is a long, long journey. And yeah, that, that, but we did have some we did have some great times there, and, and that shark fishing was superb. Just imagine though, if we were doing that now, we'd be out chasing those flipping great tuna. I know, I know. I was booked to go 
Yeah, was, I've caught tuna on poppers from Gibraltar, sort of hundred poundish, and yeah, biggest fish I've ever caught. I've caught them up to eight hundred and fifty pound in Canada, fishing um, off Prince Edward Island in Nova Scotia, and I thought it would sort of finish my little tuna fishing career just to catch one in English waters. And I was booked to go out with Rob Thompson mm. on South by Southwest Sport Fishing Charters, um, Rob and Viv Shears, um, run skipper that boat, and I've been out with them lots of times. Had some great double figure bass and what have you and I booked to go with them out of Plymouth last summer but sadly we got blown off and um, didn't happen which uh, I was gutted I'd that would have been, I'd have hung up the tuna fishing rods quite happily after that <laughs> yeah I'm sure did you see that thing that um, Kieran Fowles's crew had the other day up from the West Country he's got he, he runs a boat well, I think he might be packing up actually but he has been running a boat called Low Key L-O-K-I-E yeah, I did and see um, it. yeah, yeah. He, 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 did you see the pictures on Facebook? I mean, the because all these fish are caught being observed by um, by the government and scientists, so that um, it, it's actually sort of a control tactic to 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 work out what the stocks actually are and if there's room for a sport fishery. So everything is under observation. Every fish has to be carefully measured. And they couldn't measure this thing because they only had a 10-foot tape measure. I wish I had a picture now, here. I could think... show you of the tape measure they had when we were in Nova Scotia because it went up to X and it had the weights and then it just said something like effing massive or something like that. I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. I felt a bit of a hypocrite, really, because like you know, they've shown up on our shores, which is wonderful. And my deep down... Although it's catch and release and there's strict, you know, regulations, deep down I feel we should leave them alone. But I thought if I wasn't out on Rob's boat that day catching one, somebody else would be. So I wasn't achieving anything if I didn't go. But, you know, deep down I do think how great it is that they're here and we should just leave them in peace. And I know it sounds hypocritical from a mad keen angler, but if it was up to me I'd just leave them Well, no, it isn't at all. No, it isn't at all. I mean, I I have found a mechanism for justifying almost anything in in sport sporting fishing. So I, I you know, and, and I can justify it by these fish are being caught on rod and line and released um, because we haven't got a quota in the UK to keep them, but every other country in Spain has, and by us getting this kind of protection for them to only be caught and released and several are recaptured. We, we know they're recaptured. Um, then, then I can justify it by that. And also thinking about the probability of where these fish have come from, because the theory seems to be the one that I, I subscribe to anyway, because I think it is the most likely. Forget about climate change, forget about global warming, forget about the waters warming up, forget about the bait fish in the ocean. These fish used to be corralled by Libya. You probably know this. Yeah, and, yeah. and Colonel Gaddafi used to raise a lot of his money that he used for whatever nefarious purposes by corralling huge huge numbers of bluefin tuna all the way up the mediterranean right up to malta he had these huge pens of tuna that would grow on naturally they just couldn't escape and then when the time was right and the price was right he'd sell them now since his his regime was overthrown it isn't that long and the oceans are suddenly full of tuna i mean a chap who you and i both know i won't name him here has has driven through a school of tuna six miles long Incredible, isn't it? in British waters, in UK waters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's driven through, he's motored along a school of tuna that were six miles long from start to finish. And the worry that he's got, and I think this is quite a legitimate worry, they're eating fish that other species would eat. It was like when, when people were, people will say the reason why we don't catch flounder anymore like we used to is because the bass are eating them all because the bass are protected. Now, are we not going to catch pollock and coalfish and cod on the wrecks because the tuna are eating all the anchovies, all the sourries. So we're not going to get that, that, that bait, that food isn't going to be available for what have traditionally been our fish. I mean, we know they eat herrings, and that's why there was such a big um, tuna fishery in, in along the east coast of England in the 1930s right through to the 1950s. And the only reason they stopped after that was because we caught all the herrings, so they had nothing to eat. 
I was going to say, when I was out with Rob and Viv bass fishing about three summers ago, I caught what looked like the biggest bass I'd ever caught. Yeah, when we first saw it, they thought it was going to be 15 pound and we weighed it and I think it was 12 pound, which is still a cracking bass. But all the bass we caught that day mm. were absolutely empty. And they were saying there was just no bait fish around for them. They were starving, which, you know, it, it is it is yeah. a worry. Yeah. Uh, it's, um, I would say, though, that nature usually finds a balance. It's only when we mess it up, isn't it? Exactly right. The, 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 but there, the problem has been where we've managed things for such a long time, we've messed with the balance so much. When fish come onto ver- basically virgin territory, look look at some of the rivers, some of the rivers that we, we've reclaimed from heavy pollution, like the Crane, like the Wandle. The first fish that appear in those naturally are usually gudgeon and bleak. And suddenly you get gudgeon twice as big as a gudgeon you've never caught anywhere else because there's an empty river... And a fish goes into it and it's got all the feed that Gudgeon would have been eating for the last 10 years when the river's been fine for fish. There's just been none there. And they grow huge, huge bleak. And then the dace turn up and it's huge average sized dace. And then obviously the other species come along and everything rationalizes a bit. And then, you know, we wipe the river out again. But, you know, it, it's um, I, I think it's. We interfere with nature and sometimes forget that we are it. We are nature. And that, you know, the reason why there are so many seals now in the Thames is because somebody has stopped the fishermen fishing, stopped the fishermen controlling their numbers in the estuary. And they're now, there are now too many for the river to support and they're spreading out. The one that, that got killed a couple of years ago, was it? Maybe three years ago. The one that got killed by the dog at Barnes, that had been treated by vets three times, twice in Belgium. Crikey, I didn't know that. Yeah, that would have been three years ago. I think yeah. that was during oh, it's, lockdown, it's, wasn't it? Yeah. It was, yeah. It was, yeah. It's, it's, it's um, but anyway, that's, that's, that's nothing to do with fishing, is it? But, <laughs> um, well, it, it, indirectly to do with fishing, but it's, it's something interesting to talk I think it's interesting to talk about anyway, and I'm sure other people will I'll give you. I'll give you a link to seals and fishing. When I was in Nova Scotia, the yeah. seals were capable, if you had a mackerel or a herring on, on the hook, they were capable of nibbling away every last bit of it, apart from the bit where the hook was. They, you'd think they'd get themselves hooked, oh, but they were so yeah. clever. They'd, they'd literally pinch the bait off the hook. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, but when you think about it, see, we're a bit, we're a bit daft when it comes to fishing for, for predators. We, we, the first thing we do is put the hook in the head end. Now, I know you don't eat animals, but which bit of animal is never eaten? It's the head. Because it's the hardest bit, it's got the least meat in it, it's the only bit likely to bite your back. So you always start at the other end. Yet we always put the hook in the head of the fish in the hope that the fish that it will be eaten first. It's the last bit. It wasn't until I sussed that out when I was tarpon fishing when we used to use cut bait. And we'd always put the head bit on because it was easier to hook. We had loads and loads of it. And we're trying to save using bait so we can use the head, have seven or eight drifts back with it. Whereas the tail, you only got two drifts back and you'd get more snappers on it. But once we started using the tails or the middle, better still, our catch rate went through the roof. So, but anyway, that's a, that's a different story. So they're, they're clever, but they leave the bit behind they don't really want. <laughs> Very clever. I, I saw something the other day, actually, it was a bit off-putting. Somebody pic, put me, uh, sent me a picture of a seal in Teddington Weir and they'd watched it eat a carp between four and five kilos, a medium-sized zander, another fish that they couldn't identify, but they took a picture of the barbel that just had a big chunk bitten out of it because the seal was obviously full up and they watched it for about 25 minutes. Yeah, not good, not good. Oh dear, that's um, it's not going to take them long to wipe out stocks there if they carry on at that rate, is it? That's a that's a worry. We had five in the river two some two um two autumns ago. Five, two greys and three three um harbour seals. But anyway, that's a, you know as you say, nature will sort it out. Some of the shoots you did for tight lines, where which did you enjoy of those the most? I'll pick one home and one away that come to mind. The, the home one, I remember going, as you know, big rugby fan, ex-player, now a coach and journalist. Um, you get, you know, you get, you must have it when you know Mick or Andy, whoever it was at the time at Tightline, says, "Would you like to?" And it was, "Would I like to go trout fishing with Rafa Libanez, cat?" I can't remember now that it's ninety-eight or ninety-nine times by the All Blacks, uh, captain of France at two World Cups. 
and uh, you know, would you like to go trout fishing with him? He belongs to this, I think it was called Wickham House. It was the most beautiful sort of estate lake on a, on a sort of country stately home. And it was a lake with a stream as well. And it was packed full of browns and rainbows averaging about five and six pounds. And it was, you know, that first day in sort of May when it's really sunny. And I, I'll never forget it because I wore shorts and a T-shirt. And the next day I bumped into something. And they said, have you been on holiday? Because I got so brown. And I sat there with Raphael and we were catching all these beautiful fish. And we were talking, I remember we were talking rugby, we were talking fishing, we were talking about how the boys at Gloucester when he first came to England had got him onto drinking Guinness. And you're just sitting there and at the end of the day, you think, you have to pinch yourself and you think, am I gonna send in an invoice for this? You know, it was just absolutely brilliant, <laughs> brilliant day. And he was he was so, I tell you, the amazing thing about him was, he wasn't massive, I mean, most French front rows are really, really fearsome. Now, you don't play 98, 99 times for your country without being hard as nails. And I know he was hard as nails, but you looked at him. He didn't have a mark on his face. I mean, I had more scars than him from the games I'd played in. It was incredible. But, uh, yeah, so that, that, was a, that was a great day. And I think abroad was when, you might remember, I was lucky enough to go, to, I took Fiona Armstrong, the ex-newsreader and very keen trout and salmon angler I, I don't know if she wanted to go or tight lines invited her but I was charged with taking her to Canada carp fishing and uh, I remember I was living in you remember my old house in Twickenham and tight lines yeah. said they send a car to take me to Heathrow and I was expecting a normal sort of mini cabbie type thing and uh, this I can't remember now whether it was a Beamer or a Mercedes but it was silver and the driver got out and he was suited and booted and he came and knocked on my door. And you know, I had a tear in my eye because I just thought all the times my mum and dad gave me lifts to fishing or picked me up, you know, when my bike wasn't, or sometimes my mum would take me on her way to work and my dad would pick me up on his way home or whatever. And I thought, you know, both of them had been long dead by then. And I just thought if they could see me now getting picked up in this car with a guy in his suit and tie driving me to Heathrow to go fishing in Canada, uh, I don't think they'd believe it or they'd certainly been proud. And, and to top it all, when we got there, we just, Fiona, I'd not met Fiona before, but we had a fantastic time. She loved the carp fishing and we caught some lovely, lovely fish. And it was just, you know, we fished Niagara Falls. I remember doing a piece to camera on the... Um, on the cable car that goes across the top of the falls and I took I took her down to the whirlpool where Captain Webb, the old cross-channel swimmer, drowned, tried to swim across there for money. And uh, yeah, that was that was a special trip that I'll always remember. I got to take Fiona to the Borderesque and night fish for sea trout that weren't there. Oh dear. <laughs> yeah, we we did have a few. I had, I had a tight line trip. I remember getting phoned up saying, did I want to go salmon fishing Scotland? I can't remember it was a I think it was one day on the Tay with Scott McKenzie and one day on the on another river, I can't remember which one, with um, Ian Gordon, two world champion flycasters. And I said, I'll happily go, but if we've got days on those beach with those guys, there's obviously no fish in the river. And uh, Scott McKenzie confirmed yeah. that the night we arrived, but it was still a great experience. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the other downside of that trip to the board rest was Fiona broke her rod. Oh so walking walking across she rocks in the middle of the night isn't she could have broken yours <laughs> yeah yeah i should have looked at it that way shouldn't i that was yeah my fault i remember a cameraman walking into your rod and breaking it once as well yeah that was that was was that on the test i can't remember i that wasn't was on there. the nurslings I, I, I remember you telling me about it he walked yeah in. yeah that was the bit downstream of broadlands on i was filming down there with tim lennon and um and and i always carry my rods back to front so i've got the blunt end in front of me because if you bump into anything then it's not going to break and you exactly. don't look down at the ground and walk it into the ground by accident and, and and i stopped and he didn't and he broke the top six inches off my rod thanks again. for reminding me of that one yeah oh yeah 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 that was that was the one um but you, you, again we, you've spoken a few times uh, about rugby so give us a little bit about your rugby career well I was lucky I went to oh well I say I, I was lucky I started at a grammar school in Twickenham called Thames Valley Grammar School in fact on name check I often do when I'm asked about things but my best friend Steve Glasser who you know 
his older brother Billy was two years older than us and I always joke he got me into three things and um, he was two years older than us and when he left our junior school he went to Thames Valley Grammar School and started playing rugby and up until then probably apart from Eddie Waring on a Saturday afternoon rugby league on the telly I probably wasn't even really aware that rugby union existed and um, Billy started playing so that was it Steve and I wanted to pass our 11 plus go to go to Thames Valley so that we could play rugby and the other thing Billy did before I'd even got to Thames Valley Billy had caught my first fish on his rod over Bushy Park and then Billy supported Fulham. So when we were only about 10, Billy and some of his mates used to take Steve and I to Fulham with us. So I joke now looking back that, you know, Billy got me into supporting Fulham, fishing and playing rugby. So two out of three. I haven't had much before he got me into Fulham. I supported, you'll laugh at this as a gooner, I supported Tottenham because I played in goal for the school team and Pat Jennings was my hero. And so I sort of supported Tottenham. But once I started going to Fulham, that was it. I supported Fulham and I've supported them ever since through thick and... Well, I was going to say thick and, and thin. And you didn't have to I, change your scarf. No, exactly. I should say thin and thin, really, with um, with Fulham. But yeah, to get me... I never regret the rugby or the fishing or Fulham, really. So yeah, I did well. But um, yeah, so I went to Thames Valley, started playing rugby there. No political correctness in those days. The RPE teacher or rugby master was a guy called Ted Roberts... No. I was going to say Ted Robson. There was two. There was Ted Gummer, the Welshman, who was a fly half. He was all right. But the other one was called, I think it was Lenny Robertson. But he was a great big prop forward, played for London Scottish. I'm not sure if he played for Scotland, but he was a monster. And like, you know, he'd join in and like, we, he'd tackle us. I remember him once, picked, not me, but he picked a boy up. There was a boy with the ball and uh, Robertson sort of, no, sorry, Robertson had the ball and he was running towards this boy. And instead of the boy tackling him, Robertson just picked him up. So he had the ball under one arm, the boy under the other. And he just ran the length of the field and dotted it down for a try. So, yeah, I had a great ground and we had some <laughs> great days playing rugby at school. And then um, I didn't get on very well at Thames Valley and I changed schools. Um, and uh, I, I wasn't exactly expelled, but I didn't like them and they didn't like me. So it was a sort of mutual parting of the ways. And um, so I didn't play rugby again until I left school and then went back and uh, Thames Valley... When you'd played for Thames Valley, you could play for the old boys, which were old Thamesians. And um, I played for, the, I went back and played for them. It was quite funny, actually, because I'd been, you know, virtually chucked out of the school. I didn't think I'd be allowed to play for the old boys, but I was made more than welcome. And um, yeah, many, many happy, happy years playing for them and got invited to play for some invitational sides, went all over the world. And um, yeah, I had a great time playing, played a bit too long, got a bit too broken, as you know. And um, yeah, and then went into, I was always a journalist, as you know, and I, I didn't want to do sport while I was playing rugby because I wanted my Saturdays free for playing. But then when I couldn't play anymore, I started working for the Sunday Times, worked for them as a rugby correspondent for 30 years now, um, just trying to retire as I, I'm retirement age. Um, but yeah, I had many happy days playing, reporting, and I still coach. I coach Tamesians. I've got a women's side now, and I coach them, which I really enjoy. I thought I'd hung up the coach at London Irish for a long time, as you know, and loved it there. And I thought I'd finally retired from coaching, and then Tamesians started the women's side, and I coach them now. And uh, yeah, happy, happy days. And you enjoy it? Oh, I love it. You, love you it. play by proxy. Yeah, I just, I just wish my body. Funny enough, I was talking to. Um, a player yesterday and I was saying, yeah, rugby's a contact sport, you're going to get injured, just don't play while you're injured or train while you're injured. That was a, one of my mistakes, as you know. There are, you don't want to go... Last, last, last um, I had two incidents happen to me last year when I went to Florida um, fishing out in the Keys. Uh, I'm going next month, which I'm really looking forward to now. But when I arrived, they wanted to fingerprint you on every finger. You had to put your right hand down and all four fingers you had to put on this pad and I couldn't put my right finger down because it's broken my right little finger and it sticks out at an angle and I couldn't get it on the pad and I tried and I tried and in the end you know what how stony faced they are when they greet you at Miami or any other American airport come to Ugh. that you wouldn't believe they're the country that invented customer care have a nice day um, and so he said, try your left hand, sir. And I put my left hand down. And of course, I've broken that. Well, I've broken all my fingers, but my little finger on that one sticks out the same. And he honestly thought I was taking the you know what. And uh, mm -hmm. oh dear. And then on the way home, 
when they x-rayed me, I said, I said, look, I said, yeah, I, I said, look, I'm going to beep. I've got a lot of metal in me. I've got metal in, I think, let's work it out. My ear, my shoulder, my elbow, my hip, my leg. I probably missed something out, but you know, you've got the gist. I've got lots of metal in me and I beeped so much. He said, sir, we're going to have to test you for explosives. And I had to go and do this test. And again, it was like having your fingerprints taken on a computer. And I thought, crikey, you know, you get paranoid. What if I've like touched a door handle or something where someone's had explosives? I'm going to be here forever. But luckily I passed it and was on the way. But yeah, you never want to get behind me in the queue at security for, for an air, at an airport. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'd, I'd like to pick the people who are in front of me in queues, especially at Miami. It, uh, it usually make, usually pick the wrong queue and they change, change um, officers halfway through, but that's a different story. Um, Fisherman's Blues, uh, that, that started just 23 years ago now. 20th of June 1999 was the first one. There's a tale to be told about that as well. And um, when I needed someone to sit in for me, when I was having to go away, you know, go to places like Mauritius to film the Marlin World Cup or New York to film, I needed someone to fill in for me. And and you were the obvious candidate and you, you took to it like a duck to water, didn't you? Oh, I loved it. I loved it. I mean, and it used to be a lot then because it was Saturdays and Sundays and you, you'd go away. I'd sort of end up doing about six straight shows um, over sort of three weekends. Yep. And uh, it was always, a, I always felt, I was, even now I still feel like it's your show. You built it up and you got the brilliant tune, the Waterboys, Fisherman's Blues. It's, um, yeah, it's a, and it's amazing, isn't it, how you make so many friends doing it. You bump into people, you know, so many people listen that you bump into and say they love it and uh yeah it's uh, it's a good gig isn't it so you mentioned that you've got uh, a desire to retire um so what have you got on the list of things to do is there is there much on there what you mean like i, I usually say wish list do you mean like bucket list yeah on a bucket list yeah, I suppose so. In fact, as you know, I had a bit of surgery last month. Otherwise, right now, I'd be in Alaska, which I was really looking forward to. That's been on my list of things to do for a long time. Um, I, I was booked to go to Kodiak Island salmon fishing. Chris Tarrant had been and talked me into it. He showed me video of him with catching salmon with all the bears in the river, and it just looked amazing. And I'd, I'd wanted to go for a long time, but two things put me off. And one was I was worried about my ability to throw a big salmon fly sufficiently, but I think I can do that now. And secondly, you always just think it's too much money. But um, I remember uh, <laughs> your old Florida teammate, Roy Marlowe, saying, I don't know if you were there, but, and this was probably 10 years ago. I remember him saying to me, when we were young, our parents used to say, save it for a rainy day. He said, when you get to my age, every day is a rainy day. And, uh, you know, that yeah, I thought yeah. you're going to, you know, you're going to be dead one day. You do it while you can. So, but I haven't cancelled yeah, it. Exactly. I've told, I've told, um, I booked it through Martin, Martin Founds at Angler's World. And I've said, just put me in for the same date next year. So um, I've got that to look forward to. And then I'm back to Florida in, in November. So really, really looking forward to that going with Mark Taylor. And uh, anyone who knows Mark Taylor, he, he is he is a big unit. If I hook anything over about probably seventy pound, the rod might well be getting to pass to Mark this year <laughs> till I get the strength back. Yeah, getting Roy Marlowe's bad elbow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a he's, good he's got a bad elbow that works with sharks and Goliath groupers and things. Oh, don't hold this for me. Oh, my elbow's playing me up. Yeah, he's. I think he's off at the, the start of next year, and it's eye-watering the cost now. Absolutely eye-watering, and and you know I'd think twice about going um, and, and paying top dollar like he is. It's it's a ridiculous. Yeah, it is. I, I've I've still not been down. I, you know, we, as you know, we go to Isla Mirada, and the fishing's fantastic. I would love to go down to Key West, but like you say. Um, you probably pay for a day there, what we pay for a week. So um, that might not be happening anytime soon. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, won't, I won't tell you what it is because it's quite a lot. <laughs> so that's um, that's about it. The radio show still in, still going well? Yeah, going well. Yeah, myself and Tom, well, he's been covering for me quite a bit lately, but roughly speaking at the moment, we're alternating weeks and um, hopefully Tom will be my successor and, you know, perhaps I'll... I'll cover for him when he goes on holiday, a natural, natural succession. Um, 
so yeah all, all going well and uh yeah life's pretty good i'm all oh, it's frightening to think i'm going barbel fishing next week but it's it's almost frightening to think you know it's soon be winter again and you know fishing for roach and and i enjoy my perch fishing in the winter and uh yeah, and you'll have to come down the river. You didn't get down the river last year, did you? No, it's, it's, it's not easy now, but at least I've got slightly longer on Tuesdays and Thursdays when I can go malingering. So I might not go fishing rather. So uh, Well, they're good, fish, they're good fishing days for me as well, so we'll have to sort that. We'll definitely, definitely do it. That's a one on the nose. That is definitely okay. going to happen. And let me know those dates on the lee. I might come to, I might come to one of those. See your new rod. Oh, oh, oh the, well, you don't have to do that. Oh, just, you come round and I think it's in the van at the moment. But uh, if you pop round, you're welcome to take it with you and, and, and have a go. It's it's a match rod. It's not, a, you know, a, a specimen rod. It's a match rod that you can use six pound line on with confidence. Sounds perfect. Sounds perfect. So there you go. What, what, what we'd have to do is have to day on the test. That's what we'd have to do. You still down? You still a member? Yes, still a member. Yep. Loving it. Oh, we'll have a Thursday then. All right, mate. Well, it's been fantastic talking to you. Um, I don't know if we've made a programme or not, but um, we've had a good chat that we haven't had for some time. But, uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it's been fabulous talking to you, Nigel. Thanks so much for coming on. And, and with any luck, I look forward to seeing you really soon. My pleasure. Likewise, I always love, in- love listening to the Strange Boat podcast, so it's a pleasure to be on it, Keith. Cheers, mate. Now, if you've enjoyed that chat with Nigel, by the way, as much as I have, don't forget to tune into Fisherman's Blues every Sunday on TalkSport 2 on either DAB Radio or the TalkSport app. And while we're at it, if you haven't done so already, remember to like, follow and subscribe to the Strange Boat podcast. There's a whole library of angling chat waiting for you and plenty more to come if we're spared. So, thanks for listening and tight lines. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Helen Lewis, and I want to tell you about a podcast I've made for BBC Radio 4 and BBC Sounds. It's called The New Gurus, and it's about how everywhere you look on the internet, people are giving advice. Advice they claim will transform your life. Advice that gets some thousands, even millions of devoted followers. These online prophets are telling us How to eat, how to think, how to get rich, how to find love, how to manage our time. So how exactly are these gurus changing our lives and the world around us? And who holds them to account? Find out by subscribing to The New Gurus wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.